Welcome to the Thought Leadership Project, a podcast by Jay Harrington and Tom Nixon, exploring how lawyers can turn expertise into thought leadership and thought leadership into new business. Welcome back to another episode of the Thought Leadership Project podcast. I'm Jay Harrington. Tom Nixon is with me. Hey, Tom. Hey, Jay. So for listeners at home, we are, uh, we'll pull back the curtain. We're recording this on the morning of St. Patrick's Day. So uh, can I assume you've been a good boy thus far, Jay? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. Although, you know, um, the, we had a, we had a scramble this morning. Uh, You know, our kids are right at that age where it's like, do we, are we still supposed to do something for St. Patrick's day? You know, (laughs) um, do you, you know, like, do you, do you continue to, to sort of, uh, play the game in terms of did the leprechaun come last night? And, and we, we opted for yes. I mean, we only have so many years left where we can, uh, have fun with that kind of thing. So, so yeah, it's been so far a good St. Patrick's day in that sense. Although I haven't done much, uh, in terms of, um, just otherwise working, but uh, looking forward to maybe having a green beer this evening. All right. Any skeptical looks from your oldest, by the way? Oh yeah, she was already long gone before that came. We, we she she leaves for school earlier, so yeah, she didn't okay, uh, get good. to partake in the in the fun with our nine year old twins. All right. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, what are we talking about today, Jay? Um, well, we thought we'd kind of run through a few topics. I mean, I feel like we're going to have to make this a recurring segment. Um, the first one being just, I'll call it this week in chat GPT. Yeah. Uh, so been some interesting developments uh, as it relates to the overlap between AI and the legal industry this week. Talk about that briefly. Um, also thought we could talk about what I'll call the five types of contacts um, you know, in coaching, uh, questions oftentimes come up of, you know, I've got this panoply of different contacts. I, I'm, you know, in relationship with th- these people in different ways. Some are friends, some are existing clients, prospective clients, referral sources. You know, how do I make sense of this and have a comprehensive and 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 strategic approach to outreach and engagement with these different types of contacts? Talk about that a little bit, I thought. And then um, also, email newsletters. I feel like I, this is just probably anecdotal, but it's probably because I've just been, you know, sending a weekly email newsletter for quite a while now. Um, I keep getting more questions from lawyers about email newsletters. Is it worth it? You know, how would I go about it? That kind of thing. So I thought we could maybe just talk through that marketing tool and just share our opinions on it. So does that sound like a game plan? Perfect. Let's start with ChatGPT four okay. now, right? Yes, yeah. So ChatGPT four was released earlier this week, and um, you know it's obviously continues to make waves. Um, I am a I am a paid uh, plus subscriber, so I do have access to ChatGPT four, and and definitely have been playing around with it. Um, you know, it's hard to know exactly making a A to B comparison between. Chat GPT 3.5 and Chat GPT 4. I mean, these releases are just coming out fast and furious. Um, but you know, if you're monitoring Twitter and other forms of social media, the you know what people are doing even this week uh, leveraging Chat GPT 4 is pretty amazing. Um, we were talking before we hit record, Tom, about you know just these tools that where people are kind of doing back of the napkin sketches, describing what they want out of a website. And with that limited prompt, you know, chat GPT for writing the code that drop when dropped in, like launches a, a, a site, a fully functioning site or a video game. Um, and 
that that sort of technology is is definitely starting. We're starting to see it creep in uh, with new tools in the legal industry as well. So this week in ChatGPT, uh, there were some significant developments, and these were not just fringe things. We're seeing some of the biggest firms and companies in the world starting to adopt and and integrate these tools into their businesses. So um, first one that I wanted to mention that came out this week was DLA Piper. So DLA Piper, obviously a, a very large, um, I think probably an AMLA 25 firm, uh, if not AMLA 10 in terms of size. Um, they announced their co-counsel product, as they're calling it, which is leveraging OpenAI and ChatGPT4 technology to create and utilize what they're describing as an AI legal assistant for their professionals. Um, this is a tool, uh, you know, without a, a tremendous amount of detail. You know, I don't think anyone outside of the organization perhaps has, has seen what this is in fact going to do. But as they describe it in their press release, um, it's going to assist with legal research, document review, deposition preparation, and contract analysis. And to me, you know, as someone who's you know, certainly still a novice and amateur, but has been utilizing these tools. I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? That is that is the sweet spot use case in my estimation as to how AI is going to be leveraged um, to not again replace lawyers. I think in this case, enhance and empower lawyers in, in new and interesting ways. I think that's really where the the breakdown in this conversation has been um, over the last few months, which is, is AI going to replace, you know, X profession of the legal, you know, legal industry, lawyers in particular, or is it just a fad that's going to go away? It's like, well, no, it's that those are the, maybe the two extremes of the continuum. And who knows if AI may replace all of us someday, but in the near term, you know, it's really going to be a tool to enhance uh, the productivity and ability of lawyers to deliver services with this kind of superpower um, AI assistant uh, in their, you know, sort of, you know, at, at sitting sitting next to them at their desk, so to speak, and assisting with all of these tasks that uh, technology and software of this variety can can be much more effective at. So, um, Tom, I'll pause there. Any any impressions or thoughts on anything we said so far? We got a few more updates to make here in a minute. Yeah, well, it's just interesting that you made you that last point you made about is AI going to replace me? I saw that they had um, ChatGPT uh, do somebody's income tax return in about five minutes, right? So our accountants thinking, well, now I'm obsolete. So I think the point we sh the way we should be looking at this today is to not dismiss it on the one end of the continuum, uh, not totally freak out on the other end of the continuum, but imagine a future where most of the administrative tasks that you currently do are being outsourced not to a person but to AI, and then imagine then what is your role? You know, so uh, as an attorney, there's still a lot of role for the attorney that delivers the confidence that whatever AI spits out, this can be validated by a real human who's been in court in, you know, something that AI is not. So just as an example, you know, I'm a writer, yep. so I can envision a future where a lot of the heavy lifting of writing is done by AI. So what's my role? And that's kind of how I'm looking at it. I don't think it fully replaces humans in the next however many years, maybe someday, like you said, but try to look at a, a, a shorter time horizon to imagine your role in the reality of artificial intelligence. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, to me at least, uh, this is really, it's exciting because this allows us to be more, uh, engage in more creative thinking and less of some of the doing, right? Some of the mundane tasks. And so 
if you know if you're someone who uh, aspires to do more thinking and less doing, uh, this is what the promise of these tools uh, really offers. Um, well so. Put. Just to run through some of these others, um, so PwC uh, announced a similar product. I think this it sounds very similar to what um, DLA Piper is doing with co-counsel um, called Harvey, another AI legal assistant. In their case, talked about it doing contract analysis, regulatory compliance, claims management, due diligence. Very very similar in that respect um, to what uh, DLA Piper is doing with co-counsel. And um, another one, probably the one that maybe got a lot of buzz on social media, as you might imagine. Um, so do not pay. This is the this is the uh, company that is trying to develop, you know, really uh, almost like litigation tools. Almost this would be a case, uh, and what they're trying to do is is replace lawyers in some respect in terms of its ability to do things like draft complaints, even. Um, there was a, I don't know if you want to call it a stunt, but the founder of this do not pay company tried to get an AI to represent someone in court over a traffic ticket. And, um, the judge, you know, warned them off against that. Um, but in this case, the, the, the new thing that was launched or, or at least previewed, um, by do not pay this week was, uh, the ability to generate what it described as one-click lawsuits to sue robocallers. So you're on your cell phone, you get a robocall. Um, what what they described was uh, you receive one of those calls, you click a button, the call gets transcribed, and a thousand-word lawsuit is automatically generated based on sort of the facts um, and circumstances of that case. And, um, you know, I mean, that, I don't know, I don't know if it sounds far-fetched or not, but um, I think that that's entirely possible with this technology. So we'll be interested to see how that plays out over time. Um, but that was uh, do not pays kind of splashy thing this week, saying basically chat GPT 3.5 wasn't capable of doing that, but four now is. Um, hmm. And then finally, uh, Microsoft. So this is not necessarily focused explicitly on the legal industry, but the legal industry very much utilizes the Microsoft 365 suite of products. Um, and Microsoft, which many people will remember, uh, basically purchased or invested uh, $10 billion into OpenAI. Um, and, and as a result, I think has some exclusive rights or, or at least certainly enhanced uh, ability to utilize ChatGPT technology into their products, announced that it was launching Microsoft Copilot, which was basically integrating GPT-4 into PowerPoint, Excel, Word, Outlook, Teams, and other Microsoft products. So to me, what's interesting here is that, you know, a lot of the uh, AI tech startup ecosystem is focused on leveraging AI into these different tools and different software products and whatnot. And you know, if if a behemoth like Microsoft just incorporates that same technology into its its software that almost everybody's using anyway, like what does that do to the broader AI ecosystem? I don't really have a point of view on that. I'm not close enough to it. Um, don't understand it well enough. But it just to me was noteworthy that okay, yeah, all of this is going to be available through existing products that Microsoft has, and with probably without much of a um, bump in cost, right? Because for them, it's like if I get, we can maintain and and build upon our subscriber base. Like that's that's what we're trying to do: enhance features as opposed to, you know, charge people a bunch of new money for um, new products. 
that that gives Microsoft a real competitive advantage to me relative to some of the nascent startups. But we'll see. It's interesting to see this was going to launch probably the next generation of tech war between Microsoft, Google, Apple, right? So they invested, what, $10 billion in ChatBG, something crazy yep. like that? Yep. So it's like, I, I don't know. This is, again, very anecdotal, just observational. I feel like Google, you know, the, the Google office suite, it started to eat Microsoft's lunch. I mean, it's so easy. It's so open. It's so light and breezy. I know I'm sure Microsoft's not hurting for uh, revenues, but um, this totally changes the game. And now this forces Google in this example mm -hmm. to counter it, right? Because there's yep. some AI built into the tools, and uh, but nothing to this extent. So that's going to be yep. interesting. And then what does Apple do, right? Because mm -hmm. Apple's been trying to protect all its complete ecosystem from Google's of the world. And it's just like, even though they're not all offering the same things and all the same products, there's this huge war between, you know, Meta, Google, everyone wants to keep everyone on their own platform. And uh, Microsoft, I think throwing down the first gauntlet here. Yeah. Well, that's why I think Google freaked out so badly because everyone saw this was possibly a, a platform shift, right? We're going from search, traditional search to now using you know generative ai as your search tool um that's what caused i think the the freak out at google um in in recent weeks and and a complete and 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 all you know altogether shift in terms of focus um to these tools but in any event interesting stuff oh, yeah. um but that's our this week in chat gpt update <laughs> next so. week's uh this week in chat gpt by the way will be brought to you by chat gpt <laughs> we won't even be here They'll just yeah, that's right that's right probably be a better show for yeah. it um all right, cool. All right, well, so let's talk about this five types of contacts. So again, um, this arises, I think, in terms of when people are uh, engaging in business development, uh, we oftentimes will recommend that they develop a key contact list. So, you know, somewhere 20, 25, 30 contacts um, that are a, a small subsection uh, or subgroup of your larger network. Um, the reason to do that is that, you know, you can only stay in touch on a one-to-one -one basis with so many people in your network, you've got to winnow things down. You have to focus and create some prioritization within your contacts. Um, so that once you develop that list though, there's it's, it's likely that that list will consist of people with whom you have different types of relationships. So again, friends, existing clients, prospective clients, referral sources, alliance, um, relationships, which I'll describe in a, in a moment, but, um, and, and depending on who that person is and what type of relationship we, you have with them, sometimes it's difficult to understand like, well, how do I, you know, how do I engage in business development with these folks? Like, how do I take someone who's a, might be a friend that I primarily have a personal relationship with and start talking business with them? Like, it seems a awkward. I'm a little, you know, I don't, I just don't know how to go to, about doing that. So um, thought we'd just share some thoughts on that uh, because it is a question that comes up quite often. Um, so if we take these one at a time, I mean, if I'm thinking about someone who, you know, I generally have a personal relationship with, but they're in a position, you know, they're an executive at a company, they're in some sort of decision-making role. This could be, you know, they're not, they're not an in-house counsel at a company, but they're head of business development and um you know for new products and whatever the case might be this would be a this this would be a person who maybe you know I, I have again a personal relationship with but I've never discussed business with you know what do I do in that situation and and my my general approach on this is 
in in that sort of situation, you don't want to go into it where, you know, one day you're just like, hey, can I can I sort of pitch you on what I do and talk about my services? I think a much better approach in that situation is to, you know, get go take this sort of person to lunch and be really curious and ask lots of questions of the other person about their career and about their career objectives and goals and what their roles are in their in their in their profession. Um, people love to talk about themselves, as we've talked about before on this podcast. And if you go into an interaction with a friend um, and you start asking them about their business uh, in a way that you've never done before, you never really explored this territory uh, or their role odds are they're going to start reciprocating and asking you about your profession, your role, what your objectives are. And, and they're essentially opening the door um, to you talking about what you do. So I guess that's that's just one way that I think about this, um, this challenge of broaching the topic of business development with a friend. It's, it's not to figure out a way to talk about yourself and your services. It's to really focus the conversation on that person and what they're doing professionally, which is naturally going to lead to them, in most cases, asking th those same questions of you. Yeah, agreed. I always am very uncomfortable with the idea of even doing business with friends, so I don't approach it. But you'd be amazed how many referrals I get from friends, mm -hmm. some of whom really don't know exactly what I do, other than I'm in a certain field and they presume because they like me that I'm good at it. So I guess the moral of that little story is uh, not to avoid any sort of professional conversation or relationship with friends. It's just that if you're uncomfortable selling to them, you can still just make them aware of what you do. Um, they can see your content maybe on social media, etc. Maybe they're subscribing to your newsletter or you just sign them up, which we'll get to in a bit. But yeah, friends are like a huge resource, but not if you approach it from, all right, how do I get past this uncomfortable thing and try to sell my best friend on hiring me, which, which can be done, but I just don't, that for me personally, it's too much pressure because if the business relationship goes sour, then what happens to the friendship? Totally. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. Um, agreed. So yeah, then let's shift to the next category, which is it would be existing clients. Um, and this would seem like in some ways the easiest approach, right? You already have a working relationship with this person. I think the challenge that oftentimes gets identified here is, you know, you have these periods that are very hot and cold. You're you're working with someone on an existing engagement, litigation matter, transaction. It's like you're in contact every day, multiple times a day with this person. And then that ends and there's a gap. And then, okay, what do I do now? Um, I, you know, I'm oftentimes, again, in contact with this person, but it's always in the context of an existing engagement. So to me, there in that scenario, what you really want to be focused on is being, you know, sort of stepping into that trusted advisor role and really being an educator for this person. So, you know, with an existing client, this is, you know, this, you know, this business ostensibly, you, um, you understand, you know, what, this per particular person's role is, you know a lot about them. So you then are in a position to really um, continue that conversation and stay in touch through providing great resources to this person. So, you know, it might be content that you're creating and sharing with them. It might be things that you're seeing in the news that you think might be um, helpful for them to understand. Again, trusted advisor role, the role of an educator, that's that's kind of you know one of the main ways to think about staying in touch and engaging with these people um, who are who happen to be existing clients. Um, that's you know there's other things you can do, but if you're if you're looking for one surefire way to do it, just sort of be the educator in that sort of scenario. 
Yeah, and along the way, even if you're educating clients um, on things that maybe they already know because they work with you, but you're still constantly reinforcing confidence that they have in you, so that can lead to retention, and it can lead to obviously referrals and prospective clients, which we're getting to next. But um, yeah. there's, I think sometimes there's the presumption that well, I don't want to like beat this drum too loudly because the client already knows all this, right? But they don't really. Um, I mean, at least you shouldn't presume that they do because that you're educating them. They might find value in things that you thought they already knew and they don't. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so prospective clients, uh, this one's probably the one that takes the most thought and, and strategic thinking around it, right? Where this is, you don't have an existing relationship. Um, you, you're not just going to want to be sending like, Hey, just checking in emails to the, to this person. Um, so what you, what I think you want to be doing here is really thinking in terms of, um, you know, I don't want to have too many prospective clients at any one point in time, because if it's worth the investment in trying to secure a new client, which is, as we all know, much harder than it is to expand, for example, an existing relationship uh, with a client, then you've got to, you know, you've got to be strategic. You've got to approach this in a, um, a more tailored fashion. So, so get, this is where maybe, you know, if you have prospective clients on your list, do research, gather data, um, get information, see if you have any people in your network or who are connected to the person that you're trying to target, learn as much as you can about the business and perhaps do something over invest in, in the, the offer, so to speak. Cause if what you're trying to do is to get in and talk about your services and see if there's a fit with that prospective client, well, the best way to do that is probably to, to get a foot in the door by offering something that they almost can't refuse. Right. So again, this could be, um, understanding what types of issues they're facing in their business or industry and developing some sort of CLE type program um, for the in-house counsel team on a particular topic and, and, you know, investing tens, uh, 10, 20, 30 hours into a particular um, initiative uh, or, or uh, approach with this, with it was with respect to this particular client um, because you know, you've only got perhaps one crack at this, right? To have this initial conversation to see if there's a fit and see and have them evaluate whether they want to hire you or not. You might as well overinvest in those types of situations. So it's different than some of the others where it's about staying top of mind and having a, a high cadence of um, being in touch with someone. Here, it's like I want to have a really strong approach, and that might mean that I'm not in in as frequently in touch with this person. But when I am, and when I'm ready to go, it's going to be something of great value. And are you suggesting, Jay, that they would do this at no no fee? That's right. Yeah. Yep. I think that's a really good approach, especially right near the end of the, where at least where you feel like you're at the end of the sales funnel or the bottom, where it's either they're, they're I don't know, teetering on a decision whether to do something, move forward, or maybe you're, you're, you're on the short list. And yeah. the one that comes forward, it says, well, let me just show you this thing that we have that, or that I will develop for you at no cost. I mean... Isn't that going to crowd out the competitors? Isn't that going to maybe give the prospect the, the confidence to be, well, if I'm not ready to buy today, I can at least go this far because it's not going to cost me anything. So I think it's really smart. It's uh, the challenge is finding the time, um, which maybe you could speak to because uh, someone who hasn't done this yet might look at it and say, well, I'm going to invest 10, he said 10, 20 hours mm -hmm. on something I'm not getting paid for. So how do you overcome that potential objection? 
Yeah. I mean, I think this is where maybe, you know, having an, a, having a focus to your practice helps too, right? I mean, if you're, yeah. so you're creating something once and and you can apply this, that same playbook of like over-investing, delivering something of great value to prospective clients who are all similarly situated. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that's one way to look at it. And also to think like, all right, you know, I'm not going to over-invest in the sale. I, I've, I've got to be pretty certain that I have a competitive advantage here. Like you've got to do your research. You don't want to just be kind of scattershot, like reaching out to prospective clients. It's like, okay, I know, I know through research and diligence I've done that um they're, you know, they're not happy with the current council. You know, there's this there, maybe there was a role change within the company. Like the the environment is right for this approach and this investment. And the lifetime value of that client relationship could be huge. Like you would you would gladly trade 20 hours of your time to secure that client for the next decade, right? Mm-hmm. But you've got to have a relatively high level of confidence that this is a true opportunity. It's not to say that you're going to get it, but it's it's worth pursuing. Okay. Yep. Good. Yeah. Great. Yeah. What about referral sources? Yeah. I mean, I think here it's about, you know, re- with referral sources, I think sometimes there's a tendency to be a little bit passive, um, waiting for that referral source to be sending things our way. I think two things here. One thing is you always want to be making sure that you are clarifying like what type of work, what type of clients um, you're you're looking for. To your point earlier, Tom, like when talking with friends, sometimes friends don't have an understanding of what we do, right? They know I'm a, you know, you're a writer, you're a lawyer or whatever the case might be, but not actually what you do with any sort of specificity. So they're not, they have no sense of the ideal client or the ideal type of work you're looking for. So I think creating clarity for that person and then also looking for opportunities to reciprocate. So I think referral relationships should be in an ideal world reciprocal. So the more you can reciprocate, you know, the more, you don't, you don't have to be checking in with the referral sources saying like, again, Hey, do you have anything for me? That's not a good approach. Much better approach is, Hey, I want to understand how I can help you in this, in your business as well. You know, clarify that for me. And then in fact, be going out and looking for opportunities to make introductions for them. That's naturally going to lead to more referrals to you as well. Yeah, I've got a handful of really, really good ones that I've developed. And it kind of started this way is that somebody out of the blue referred a client to me and I felt somewhat obligated to return the favor, not because that person expected it, just because it mm-hmm. felt like the right thing to do, right? So I did, and yep. I referred somebody. And so guess what happened? <laughs> he probably felt obligated to refer somebody back to me. And now we're like, we're true referral partners. Like he does something yeah. I don't do, and I do something he doesn't do. So we just send stuff back and forth, but it goes, you know, it speaks to that initial outreach. Um, instead of waiting to feel obligated because somebody referred somebody to you, maybe you just proactively refer somebody to the potentially, you know, attractive referral source that you might have. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and then lastly, alliance, uh, alliance relationships. So I just, for one, I just want to define what this means. Cause I think oftentimes this, um, you know, people don't think in these terms, but as distinguished from a referral source, an alliance relationship would be someone who, for example, is providing services to the same types of clients you're targeting, but in a non-competitive role, right? It's, it's, I'm the bankruptcy restructuring lawyer, and you are the, um, you know, the corporate turnaround professional who's doing like, you know, consulting work. And um, in it, in like a chapter 11 bankruptcy, um, both of these roles are needed, right? And so instead of 
you referring me into something and vice versa. Sometimes that will still happen, but oftentimes in these terms, we're going to go out and identify opportunities as an alliance, as a team. So though that's sort of the fifth category of contacts. I mean, you know, in terms of how to approach those relationships, I mean, it really is more of a, hey, transparent, strategic approach. Let's get together and try to mutually identify and collaboratively identify opportunities. It's it's not so much, you know, you don't have to be as, 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 sort of careful and in, 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 in terms of the, the approach you're taking, the thoughtful approach you're taking. It's much more, hey, let's go, let's go get after it and identify some opportunities and go out and pitch that work together because we're we're a good alliance together. And so it's just thinking in terms of identifying and developing relationships with those who are in um, you know, again, different providing different services, but targeted towards a similar uh or a common client base. Yeah, I have a uh, client that's actually formalized that exact program. There's no exchange of fees or commissions or anything mm-hmm. or referral, you know, bonuses or whatever, but it's they're a um, financial advisor, wealth management firm, and their four legs to the stool are themselves, the um, insurance agent or broker, the attorney, and the CPA or accountant. Mm-hmm. None of those compete, but they all serve the client in a very similar way, which is guarding assets, you know, optimizing futures. So they're all aligned. And if you can find really good ones that you trust, then that united front becomes like this package deal that like other competitors can't edge out unless they're doing the same thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's a great example of that, Tom. So um, so yeah, so those are the five types of contacts. I'm not saying that there's not a six and a seventh, but those are the main ones that I see for most lawyers and professionals. Um, and just some ideas on how to kind of go about um, nurturing those relationships over time. Um, all right, so let's maybe just quickly go through some uh discussion on email newsletters, uh, Tom. And in some ways, maybe we'll tee some of these topics up for further discussion in in, um, future episodes. But uh, this is another area where uh, getting an increasing amount of questions and just just inquiries in general. And I thought it's not really something we've addressed too much on the podcast before. Um, So let's maybe just take uh, these four questions uh, that we sketched out and we'll address them one by one. And um, I'll I'll po- pose the first one to you, Tom. Which is from a from a lawyer standpoint. If we to use the, uh, what do you think? Is it worth it to pursue developing an email newsletter? Well, as somebody who wrote a book about this very concept, um, and my formula for simplifying marketing in general was picking one modality and coupling it with email. Email was for me, it's the non-discretionary thing that you have to do. It's something that everyone spends five to seven hours in front of. Um, Even the poor performing newsletters that say only get 25% open rate say, and I think that's pretty low. Uh, It should be closer to 45, 50. I think that dwarfs any other digital marketing platform in terms of, you know, engagement or impression. Um, It's just, it's the one medium, it sounds clunky and old school, but it's the one medium in which you can capture somebody's attention um, and there's really no distraction. Yeah, there's other emails that are distracting them, but if you do it really effectively, it's this one-to-one thing that there's some level of um, confidence that you're going to at least get in front of the prospective audience as opposed to, say, social media where you're putting something out and you're hoping the algorithms do their thing and the right people see it. So um, it's just a little more captive, I think, in that way. So, yeah, is it worth it? For sure. I think it's definitely worth it. Yeah, agreed. I don't have a lot of, lot to add to that. I think that's all right. Um, and I would just maybe the one thing I would add would be, and 
you know, the, you don't you don't own your social media following. You know, True. you're, you're yep. sort of you're borrowing that audience. Whereas with you know, your if you have someone's email, you own it to a greater extent. At least the the ability to reach someone. Um, and then you know, the other question I get, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time on this. Um, is okay. What tools do I use? Oftentimes, uh, if someone will email me, they'll say like, "Well, what what platform are you using? What software? What how are you doing your email newsletter?" And um, I mean, it's I say in this case, and I bet you agree with this, Tom, is like, it can be really simple. I mean, even as simple as you don't need any tool other than Outlook or Gmail, whatever you're using for your email. I know I know lawyers who, you know, you have to be careful. You have to have a, some, some of a smaller distribution list, obviously, but are just simply emailing like five bullet points of like things that are trending in the news or industry updates um, to, you know, 50 or 75 contacts uh in their in via just a regular email and i don't know do you call that an email newsletter i i kind of think it is mm-hmm. if you if it's done on a consistent basis and and you're delivering value in that way so you don't need a fancy tool but i do think if you want a kind of a proper email newsletter as most of us think about it mailchimp um you know there's constant contact uh there's some newer platforms like Beehive. Uh, I I have I host my website on Squarespace, and so Squarespace has a built-in email newsletter, which is kind of nice because it's all in sort of one place. But you don't need anything fancy. Um, Mailchimp for most people is fully is 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 entirely sufficient for what most lawyers would be trying to do. Yeah, all of those tools are t- trying to democratize. So even the sophisticated ones are fairly simple and intuitive. So yeah, I don't think you could go wrong. My personal favorite is Mailchimp, but you know, I work in all of them for what I do for a living. So the only yeah. one that you didn't mention, and here's a topic I want to come back to someday, Jay, is whether you're trying to build a network or you're trying to grow an audience. I think those are two different mm-hmm. things. And if you're looking to grow an audience, I would look at something like Substack, which mm-hmm. we can, that's a whole different animal, but yeah. 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 We can talk about Substack more. Um, and then, I mean, focus. So this is another more strategic question of like, all right, I bought into the idea that I want to do a newsletter. Like what, what in the heck should it be about? Um, and this is probably an area where we may may have to circle back and talk about this issue um, in more detail in a later episode. But in general, I mean, do you have like a couple rules of thumb, Tom, to think about like what should my newsletter be about? Uh, well, I mean, I'm going to echo something that you always preach, which is I think uh, defining a, a niche and sticking in it as opposed to trying to, you know, be general, all purpose in nature. Um, in two ways to do it, either your own personal niche. So this is obviously maybe the practice of law, say that you cover or a niche of a subject matter that maybe there's already a built in audience for and you're going to leverage that extremely passionate audience you know, I'll use my silly example, right? I have a Yacht Rock podcast, right? Mm-hmm. That's pretty niche, but there's, you know, a Yacht Rock fandom out there that's in the tens of maybe not hundreds of thousands. I don't need to get them on my mailing list necessarily, but I need to create a mailing list um, that is at least going to somewhat penetrate that market, right? So, yep. um, and the same is true of professional email newsletters as well. What do you, what recommendations do you have on focus? Yeah, no, I mean, it can be all, a bunch of different things, right? Um, I mean, one of the most effective and easy to execute, for example, is like the, you know, weekly or monthly industry update, right? Where it's like a roundup of the, you know, news that 
people within your audience, your your niche audience uh, need to know. And I, I know there's a number of lawyers that do something similar to that. And um, it's not that it's no work, but it's it's more curation than it is creation. And uh, and that's that's certainly one area. But there's you know there's a bunch of different ways you can go about it. But yeah, certainly you want to find some overlap between your client base, your services, and your newsletter topic. Um, and then lastly, how to grow a newsletter. I mean, this is a this is a, a topic that um, again deserves probably a longer discussion. But um, you know for for me, you know, probably the biggest, the things that I've used uh, to grow mine over the last year have been integrating it into my social media approach, right? So LinkedIn, uh, I have the, my URL, the main call to action I have, I would say, um, in my posts, if I'm doing, if I'm going to mention it in a post, um, and I will do that in a comment to the post, typically, uh, you know, my, my unique URL within my profile, all of that is driving people back to my newsletter in the featured section of my profile, um, email newsletter, sign up. So it's all, it's all driving towards that one call to action. Um, and then, you know, tried other things like, for example, um, I know, you know last week, uh, Alex Sue, uh, mentioned my newsletter to his newsletter subscribers in his weekly uh, email. And I did the same. And we, you know, we did that, I think, because we both subscribe to each other's newsletters and we both um, find value in them. So we thought, while we probably have some overlap in our audiences, um, we can, there's maybe not that much and we can introduce our newsletters to each other. So there's that sort of cross promotional aspect of how to grow a newsletter. Asking, um, I'm, I always ask people at the end of each newsletter to, you know, send, share, you know, that newsletter with uh, someone who they think might find it interesting. So asking essentially for referrals from your existing readers. There's lots of different ways to go about it. Um, you know, adding it as a as a link at the bottom of your bio blurb if you're publishing content on different websites. Bunch of different ways to go about it, but you do have to be purposeful about it. Your newsletter will not just grow if you just have some subscriber link on your website in a passive way. I guess the the major po- issue or point I'm trying to drive across is you've got to be intentional and purposeful about this as with anything else, or you'll just have a stagnant list. Yep. I mean, some of the fancy pants people who are looking to grow back to growing an audience will even incentivize, you know, either you get access to merchandise if you forward, mm-hmm. if you, you know, as an affiliate, or you'll get some, you know, NFT, you know, token if you mm-hmm. sign or refer people up. So um, that gets a little uh, more technical, but the point is the one that you're making, which is be purposeful about it and give somebody not only an easy way to refer people to it, but maybe even some sort of incentive. So, yeah. Awesome. All right, Tom. Well, uh, I think that's the episode. That is. I, yeah, I could feel the uh, chat GPTs closing in on us. Uh, so <laughs> they're getting ready. They've been listening and learning today. That's so right. Next, that's right. Next week they're on their own, Jay. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll unleash the bots next week on you. Uh, <laughs> no, un- unfortunately I think we'll be Tom and I'll be back again uh, yeah. for your listening pleasure. So in any event, uh, until then, I hope everyone has a great week and thanks for listening as always. Thank you for listening to the thought leadership project. For show notes, additional resources, and links to the tools discussed on today's episode, visit thethoughtleadershipproject.com. 